this should be I think a central debate for us. So what class means, what class struggle uh, uh, should mean, uh, what, what is the new class composition, what are the forms uh, through which uh, the class spontaneously is starting fighting back, resisting and so on and so on. But what I've seen over and over again was uh, the tendency to cultivate the illusion that somehow Uh, the elections or uh, you know electoral visibility is going to replay is going to basically give us the magic solution to uh, the problem of uh, the class self-organization this program is brought to you by haymarket books as part of our live event series haymarket books is a radical independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Welcome, everybody, to Spectre Live. It's a series of events that we're co-sponsoring with Haymarket Books. My name's Ashley Smith, and I'm part of the Spectre Journal Project. And we're really uh, overjoyed today to have the book launch for the new volume that's just been published by Haymarket Books entitled Revolutionary Rehearsals in the Neoliberal Age that's edited by Colin Barker, Neil Davidson, and Gareth Dale. Gareth Dale's the editor who will be on the book launch today about the book. Sadly, both Neil and Colin have passed away, but we're doing this event partially in honor of them and to celebrate their scholarship and political activism over decades. So we have a wonderful uh, panel today um, that will be discussing the book, the issues involved, the lessons for the left internationally, and in discussion about the various countries that the book examines um, over the last several decades. I'll introduce the panelists in order that they'll be speaking and then turn it over to them. First, we'll have Gareth Dale, um, who's, as I said, one of the editors of the volume. He teaches at Brunel University, and he is the author of The East German Revolution of 1989. After Gareth, we'll have Francis Fox Piven, who is Distinguished Professor of Political Science and Sociology at the Graduate Center, City University of New York. She is a co-author with Richard A. Cloward of The Breaking of the Social Compact, a co-author with Lorraine C. Minot and Margaret Groark, I'm mispronouncing their names, I'm sure Francis so correct me, of Keeping Down the Black Vote, Race and the Demobilization of American Voters, and author of The War at Home, The Domestic Cost of Bush's Militarism, and Who's Afraid of Francis Fox Piven? We all are. <laughs> the essential writings of the professor Glenn Beck loves to hate. She lives in New York City. After Francis, We'll have Sameh Naguib, who teaches sociology at the American University in Cairo and has written extensively on politics in Egypt and the Middle East. He is also a founding member of the Revolutionary Socialist Movement in Egypt. And we'll conclude the panel with Chinsia Arusa, who is professor, <coughs> associate professor of philosophy at the New School for Social Research and Eugene Lang College. She is the vice president of the New School 
AAUP chapter and co-author of Feminism for the 99% a Manifesto. She is a member of the editorial board of Spectre Journal. So with those introductions, I'll turn it over um, to Gareth. Gareth, take it away and let's launch revolutionary rehearsals for the neoliberal age. Great, thank you. Um, I hope you can hear me. Um, yes, you can. Uh, so begin with several thank yous to Ashley for chairing, um, to Spectre for organizing this launch, um, to the many chapter contributors um, who make the book, uh, one of which uh, we have with us today, and to Haymarket for organizing this and for publishing the book, keeping its price incredibly low, to Eric Curl for his cover design, which is so stunning. And it's just a delight to be able to discuss some of the themes of this book with um, with Cinzia and Francis and Same. Um, I'm kicking this off, but really my seat should should be Colin Barker's. Uh, this book is really his baby. And um, the, the big theory chapters are by Colin and by Neil Davidson. Um, neither of them can be with us, as you've heard. Um, and to lose them has been a terrible blow and they'll be greatly missed. It was great to be working with them on this volume. We even managed to work together during the Brexit referendum, despite each of us voting three different ways in that ref referendum. Um, and it took a while to get the book over the line until um, just a year ago, the title was going to be, begin with the phrase, struggling to be born, a paraphrase of a quote from Gramsci, which refers to socialist transformation, essentially. Um, but as the years ticked by, the condition of the book itself seemed to be summed up by that title. Um, uh, it struggled for a while. Eventually, it's seen the light of day. Um, uh, we submitted it to the publisher back in 2019, and just a few months ago now, it's it's been born. Um, it's a successor to a book that Colin edited back in 1987, which was called Revolutionary Rehearsals. And the focus of that book was on moments in previous decades in which we'd been able to at least glimpse the possibility of mass workers' movements challenging for, for state power. To, for example, um, Poland in 1980 to 81, where you saw a strike wave, uh, the formation of factory councils, and then interfactory councils, which in effect were a kind of embryonic Soviets, beginning to organize not only the management of workplace affairs, but society more widely. And if those interfactory councils and the Solidarność movement had gone on to fight for political power, um, then you're talking about at the onset of a dual power situation, or you would have been. It could be glimpsed, let's say. Since that book came out in 1987, the world has actually seen a lot of uprisings and revolutions more uh, and more frequently than in the previous decades, but very few of them, if any of them, have centered on powerful mass working class movements in that same sense. I, I, don't, I don't want this point to be exaggerated. Uh, you know, the, the mainstream accounts that we read of uprisings in our own time in, in, in today's world, they always tend to downplay working class elements and the middle class individuals and organizations who are on the ground in those uprisings, they, they're the ones with the media contacts and the confidence to push their story to the fore. Um, in my own chapter in this volume, which is on East Germany, essentially, in, or Eastern Europe in 1989, I, I, I touch on the wildcat strikes of early October 1989, which were a critical part of the process that led to the fall of the Berlin Wall, but completely ignored in most of the literature 
on that event. And then if, we, if you think about uprisings in recent years, we can see the same thing. Whether you're looking at Sudan or Myanmar or Algeria or Belarus, um, it's the demonstrations that have grabbed the media limelight, but, but strikes and industrial um, action have been pretty central too. But even if we allow for all of that, it's still undoubtedly the case that since the early 1980s, we haven't seen revolutions that have centered on the militant and independent activity of working of workers. Um, and there have been few revolutions that have pointed towards systemic transformation, and that needs to be explained. And so all of this formed the background to writing this or editing this volume. And we, the aims we set for the volume were well, first we first we looked at a range of case studies um, of uprisings over the last thirty years, surveying the movement dynamics and and the strategies, the ebbs and flows, the mo those moments when reformist elements within the movement are able to constrain and rein in the movement, those moments when the whip of repression can lead to rapid radicalization, and whether workers' movements have been able to draw other draw oppressed groups behind them and so on and uh, we asked the chapter authors to highlight those glimpses of revolutionary potential that are able to point beyond a bourgeois framework or where, where we can begin to see that those cracks um, emerging a second goal for the book was to look for patterns in the uprisings of recent decades and relate them to broader social and political shifts so we identify the 1970s as a pivotal turning point uh, in several respects. It was then that the, the final remnants of pre-bourgeois society um, were dissolving, the end of colonialism. Some colonies, of course, remain, Palestine, Western Sahara, Northern Ireland, a few others. But the era of anti-colonial revolution was essentially coming to its end in the 1970s. The 1970s also saw the end of a social movement conjuncture. De two decades had seen rising social movements, which were gathering force worldwide and leading to anti-systemic questions being thrown up all around the world. The horizon of radical change was pushing forward. Since then, the pattern of struggle has subsided. It's been more normal, more depressed. Levels of industrial action, generally speaking, have been lower. And this linked to another change in the era uh, dated, dated in the 70s, which is that forms of corporatism and state capitalism and import substitution industrialization, they all went into decline, being replaced by neoliberal structures. And all of this meshed with a change in the world's political structure, the rise to dominance of parliamentary government, of liberal democracy. And so increasingly, the template for revolutionary uprisings was for that they be contained by transitions to democracy, as in Portugal in the mid 70s or Czechoslovakia in 1989. And the later uprisings that are covered in our book, they're defined increasingly, we think, as, as responses to neoliberalism, especially the case of Egypt, which, which Sameh addresses in, in his chapter. We hadn't finalized the Book structure by 2016, when the feminist strike movement kicked off in Poland and then across Southern Europe and the Americas, had we had the book's content still been open, we could have included a chapter on those women's strikes and their relation to this crisis of care, of social reproduction. Although Neil's 
theory chapter covers it a little bit. This is an area that we could have covered a bit better. Finally, the third goal of the, of the book is that we try to draw out some implications for understanding the potential for a globe, for a transformation to socialist society today. And this is largely in Collins and Neil's uh, chapters. If we're ever going to see a transformation from a capitalist world to a socialist world, it's going to begin with a situation of dual power where workers, institutions uh, challenge established power structures at every level of society, from workplaces, from neighborhoods up to the nation state and, and, and ultimately international institutions. Um, so, these are these are the core aims of the book that we were the, the core questions that we were uh, trying to raise with this book. And with that, I can turn over to our next. Thanks so much, Gareth. And people should definitely go to Haymarket Books and buy your copy of Revolutionary Rehearsals in the Neoliberal Age. Next, we have Francis Fox Piven. Take it away, Francis. OK, I'm so glad to speak about this book because it provokes uh, and it opens uh, the beginning of a conte very contemporary discussion of revolution, which has been treated almost in an iconic way by the left without, I think, a real reckoning for the very mixed history of actual revolutions that we have to look to for guidance. Uh, we think about revolution as the sort of total displacement of the ruling class, which in our era would mean the total displacement of neoliberalism. The, the, the problem that we have, however, is that the history of actual revolutions is a very grim history. There are very few revolutions that we would all acknowledge as revolutions which have produced the kind of society that the participants in the struggle yearned for, that the kind of society that they claim to be working for. In fact, if you look at the Russian Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, even the Nicaraguan Revolution, it the American Revolution turns out to be the revolution that came closest to achieving the aspirations of the participants in the revolution, because the American Revolution at least produced the basic elements of an electoral representative system. So, and I think also the book makes us think about this, and it also makes us think about another question that is critical to a re-examination of the processes of social transformation for our time, it also makes us think about the working class as the agent of revolution. In the United States today, the working class is the basic support for the Trump and fascist currents in American politics. What are we to make of that? We have to begin to think about this, to acknowledge it, and to change it. And one more, uh, one more point, I think, that is crucial in a contemporary discussion of revolution, a point that has to do with the way in which the 
academic study of social movements contributes or fails to contribute to the study of social transformation. And that has to do with the issue of violence. It has become a kind of catechism in the study of social movements to proclaim nonviolence as the, uh, the, the basic requirement for all social movements. I think that that is dishonest and not helpful if we're concerned about the transformational impact of movements. Transformational, short of revolution, but including revolution. The great movements in American history have not been nonviolent. And yet we have a literature that portrays them as nonviolent, that squeezes them into this new catechism of nonviolence. The labor movement was not a nonviolent movement. In fact, it was a participant in a very bloody history of labor struggles. Think about, for example, the way we have in the literature, the way we have changed a bloody, tumultuous history into something acceptable. Think about the picket line. Oh, we what is the picket line? We turned it into a speech expression. The picket line is simply a message-making action. But the picket line originates in the effort of workers to use their brawn to prevent themselves, to prevent replacement workers from taking their jobs. But now we think about the picket line has to keep moving. It has to be the, the participants have to be so many feet apart. And the important thing about the picket line is the sign that they carry. But in fact, historically, the picket line was a way that workers used their capacity for violence to restrain the violence of their enemies, the corporate owners. Uh, or think about the civil rights movement. The civil rights movement is something that we worship as almost a kind of religious movement. It belongs in the church. Everybody is singing in harmony. No, that was not, that was part of the civil rights movement, but that movement was as strong as it was, as threatening as it was, because it was backed up by armed black farmers, by the deacons for defense. Nobody ever talks about the deacons for defense who took out their shotguns and warded off the Ku Klux Klaners who were who would certainly have destroyed the movement. So, so I want to do two things. I want to reconsider in our future discussions, and I think that this book begins those discussions. I want to reconsider our, uh, our emphasis on revolution and our confidence in revolution. And I also want, and this is even more important, I think, for the future, for the future of transformational struggles. I want to reconsider our confidence, our catechism of nonviolence.
Thank you so much, Francis. Um, uh, a model of timeliness and uh, right on on so many questions. Thank you for joining us today. Next, we have Same Nagib. Same, why don't you take it away? Oops, you're muted, Same. Yeah, I just want to make a, a few uh, uh, points uh, about the book and about the chapter uh, I wrote. Uh, about the, the, the book, I agree completely that the way in which uh, the revolutions that, or the revolutionary situations that we discuss are usually uh, portrayed is these are middle class, uh, uh, you know, uh, in, in, in the case of the Egyptian revolution, Facebook revolution, young, educated, middle class uh, uh, activists that organized on Facebook. Uh, and nothing could be further from uh, the truth in terms of what happened in the uh, Egyptian revolution. So, so I agree that it's very important to emphasize this uh, and, to, and to read what was happening, uh, whether in Egypt or other cases, uh, more, more accurately. The central role of workers uh, in uh, the events that took place in Egypt uh, in 2011. But, but there are contradictions. Okay? The third, the, uh, another point I want to make is that something Neil Davidson uh, writes about in his chapter is this idea of revolutionary uh, con conjuncture. Okay? That there are certain periods in history where, where revolutions are more likely, first of all, to spread, uh, and secondly, to succeed uh, on a global on a global level, and it's interesting that you know in Egypt in the 20th century we had two uh, main what you could call revolutions. Okay, uh, one was in 1919, which is in the middle of what uh, uh, Neil Davidson calls the, that conjuncture of the Russian Revolution of the 1920s, uh, and the second was uh, the 1952. Coup, that kind of the Nasser uh, events that led to kind of anti-colonial, uh, the anti-colonial movement, which was again in that same period, post-war uh, period. But the the revolution of 2011 uh, and, and many of the other revolutions too, it seemed to be uh, revolutionary situations in non-revolutionary, non-revolutionary conjunctures. That 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 they are kind of you know lonely revolutions, revolutions sometimes that turn regional. But, but are not really, it, it, is, it did not happen in a, at a time of a global revolutionary uh, conjunction. And I think that was one of the elements that, that helped, that, that led to the defeat of many of these, uh, of these movements. A second uh, contradiction I want to talk about is that despite the fact that workers played a central role, for example, in the Egyptian uh, revolution, uh, there were problems. First of all, the working class did not play a political role. The strikes, the economic strikes, played a central role in overthrowing Mubarak, but they were economic uh, economic strikes. The, the, the center of politics was Tahrir Square. It wasn't the industrial centers. It was not the uh, the, 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 the main kind of industrial uh, areas in which the working class was concerned. It was not the workplaces. It was the streets and and the and the uh, and the squares. Um, so despite the fact that most people that were on the square were workers, they were there as young individuals more than them being representatives of their class or of their workplaces or of their unions or, 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 or whatever. Uh, and this is something that has to do with what happened to the working class during the new liberal uh, period. 
I'll just give you one example. Okay? Many people hear about Al uh, Mahalla the big textile mill in, in the Delta uh, area. Now, that used to be one of the biggest textile mills in the world, 40,000 uh, workers. Mm-hmm. When the revolution happened, there were only 12,000 workers left in that uh, textile mill. Okay? So, so, so that is what, and, and it's on, on its way to being dismantled completely. The Helwan uh, steel mills were central historically uh, in uh, in Egyptian uh, uh, in, on, on the Egyptian scene, okay? central to uh, worker militancy. That doesn't exist anymore. It's been dismantled completely. Had thirty thousand uh, Egyptian uh, uh, thirty thousand industrial workers, uh, uh, and that does not exist. There's been a, a, during new liberals a, a very um, uh, um, clear structural transformation of the working class. Okay? So the biggest sector of the working class that is growing now is uh, uh, construction workers and delivery workers to, uh, on, on motorcycles. Okay? Suddenly you have a new uh, working class that's much more difficult to organize, much more difficult to, uh, uh, to, to even to unionize uh, than, than previous uh, groups. So there is a change in the working class that is important to note. And I think that's it's in all the case studies that we, we looked at. Uh, and it's what Garrett was, the, you know, the comparison uh, between the examples in the first book, Revolutionary Rehearsals, and the examples in the second book has to do with that, uh, that transformation. And we need to rethink how we organize, uh, how we build, how we uh, recruit, how we inter- intervene in, workers, uh, in the workers' movements uh, uh, in a way that reflects this change. Now, one other thing I wanted to, to, to mention, and I think it's very important, and it touches upon this thing, this idea of uh, right-wing mobilization and, and how successful this has been uh, recently. Now, the, the, the revolution was defeated, but it was not simply defeated by a, a military, uh, you know, a military coup that, you know, just uh, killed everybody and that was the end of it. It was not simply repression. There was a, a right-wing counter-revolutionary mobilization using all the tools of the revolution, using the slogans, using the, the idea that we want, a, uh, uh, we want a revolution against the Muslim Brotherhood. We want, uh, uh, we're going to save democracy by getting rid of the Muslim Brotherhood. We want security and law and order. We don't want chaos. We don't want this. We don't, we want the Egyptian family to, we don't want civil war. This kind of uh, creating fear and using uh, um, uh, misusing revolutionary slogans that did mobilize large sections of the middle class uh, against uh, the revolution, okay? or in the opposite direction to, uh, to to the revolution. Another thing that is regional and important is the centrality in our region, at least, of the Gulf states, of Gulf money. Uh, the Gulf states played a central role in financing the counter-revolution uh, uh, in, in, uh, in, in Egypt and continues uh, uh, to, 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 to finance this. And this is something, again, that has to be put into consideration when thinking about the future, at least in this uh, region. Thanks. Thank you so much, Same. Next, we'll turn it over to Chinsia. Chinsia, take it away. Yes. <clears throat> So first of all, thank you for uh, um, inviting me to speak about this uh, very useful and interesting book. And thank you, Gareth, for contributing to this, uh, uh, to make this book happen. Um, I want to focus on, uh, in the few minutes I have at my disposal, I want to focus on uh, 
a point that um, Gareth and uh, Colin make in their introduction, then is taken up again by uh, Neil Davidson in uh, in the final uh, essay. Um, I was a bit taken aback, uh, and then of course I said, "Oh yeah, of course this is correct." When I read this sentence in 1975, two thirds of governments were considered authoritarian. By 1995, this had dropped to a quarter, while the proportion reckoned to be liberal democracy uh, doubled over the same period from a quarter to a half. Um, Again, I I, of course (laughs) uh, this is. uh, Absolutely true. When I read when I read the sentence, I was uh, in in some kind of shock. And then I thought, why I uh, why was I so surprised? Because of, it is obvious that this is uh, the case. And I think this has to do with the way in which uh, uh, basically we have uh, somehow naturalized uh, liberal democracy, or let's say um, uh, to put it better, uh, the way in which liberal democracy is capable of naturalizing itself and presenting itself as the natural order of things. So that um, uh, it took me you know, a few uh, seconds to realize, oh, of course, until uh, mid seventies in Europe, we didn't just have the, the, Soviet, uh, the Soviet bloc. We had three military dictatorships in Greece, Portugal, and Spain. Um, so liberal democracy was by no means the most obvious or necessarily the obvious form of, uh, of the state and of, and of government. Uh, Neil Davidson uh, takes up this point again in, uh, in the final uh, um, essay in order to discuss uh, precisely the problem of the hegemony of uh, liberal democracy and how this uh, produces a, a radically different context uh, compared to the past, at least in a, in a number of uh, you know uh, of countries and in parts of the uh, um, of the world, uh, a, a very different context for revolutionary situations or uprisings uh, compared to uh, to what we have uh, uh, mostly experienced. Uh, we had mo- mostly experienced so far, um, and I think this is actually a very important point. Um, because uh, I do think that this is uh, um, uh, a bit um, of an elephant in the room that somehow uh, large chunks of the left don't want to really confront. Um, I'm going to give just a couple of examples. Um, uh, Gareth mentioned the, you know, the, the the feminist movement and so on. In the United States, um, in fact, the the, the biggest uh, feminist mobilization uh, we had in past years was the Women's March, with an impressive number of people participating in uh, in the demonstrations among the you know the largest in the history of uh, of the United States. Now, the Women's March was uh, rather uh, rapidly, basically. You know, already it was, let's say, uh, clearly this was not an uprising and it was not a revo- revolutionary situation of, uh, by any means. It was uh, uh, an organized uh, uh, series of marches. But let's say that uh, um, the energy that uh, was displayed in, the, in that event was pretty uh, rapidly uh, co-opted uh, and channeled by the state in particular by the democrat in the form in the shape of the democratic party and uh, uh, quite rapidly uh, took the the road of electoralism now we did have the same problem and uh, actually in a in a sense in a much more dramatic way because in that case we did have an uprising uh, last summer with the um, uh, George Floyd rebellion which was probably one of the um, 
largest and most impactful moments of uprising uh, in the history of the United States. Uh, and it lasted the whole summer uh, with, uh, you know, an element of uh, um, uh, radicality, radicalness that was really, uh, at least for me in these past 10 years, in the United States completely unprecedented and um, uh, wonderful to behold. However, um, the, uh, the uprising didn't really manage to, uh, to consolidate forms of uh, self-activation, self-organization, uh, subjectivation, and so on, of the social legends that were involved. And quite rapidly, uh, again, the, the old dynamic of rebellion was uh, co-opted again within uh, an electoral dynamic and uh, with, the, with, with the presidential election in November, and uh, once again uh, within, let's say, uh, um, what we may call an NGOification of the movement. Now, uh, one could make several examples of this because these are not exceptional cases. In fact, this re keeps repeating itself over and over again. Um, to move from away from the United States to Western Europe, for example, in uh, uh, at the beginning of the 2000s, uh, we started talking about the return of the political strategic question thanks to the ju global justice movement. And in fact, it is, uh, there was the hope that uh, social movements may be uh, an uprising, may be able to actually uh, think again in terms of stra political strategy, which means confronting the issue of power of the state, and so on. However, uh, in Western Euro Europe, this happened, but it took immediately, uh, quite, you know, uh, once again, very rapidly, the form of uh, uh, electoralism. So in other words, uh, the strategic discussion was flattened once again uh, on a discussion about how we participate in elections. And with the idea that, in fact, participation in the, in, uh, in, in the elections was uh, uh, somehow the royal way uh, the road to a process of uh, a new process of class formation of uh, um, of, uh, of you know growth of the of the of the left and so on, and we know how I mean we should know at least how it ended. We could think about you know Syriza and Greece, Podemos in Spain, and uh, not to speak of the Italian disaster with Rifondazione and its participation in uh, um, in democratic governments. So I'm. Uh, um, I just wanted to emphasize these aspects uh, of, you know, of the more theoretical essays of the book, uh, because I do think that this is really uh, um, a key issue, and especially here in the United States, I would say that uh, discussing the, the uh, liberal democracy, its capacity for hegemony, uh, and uh, its, its enormous capacity for cooptation is uh, um, absolutely urgent. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and fundamental. And I, I do think that there is some, uh, a bit of a resistance to actually tackle this question in strategic terms in a much more serious way. Thank you so much, Cinzia. Um, those were all wonderful contributions. And now I wanted to give a chance for um, our panelists to respond to one another. And I wanna pose a few questions as well to each of you. Um, so I just wanted to begin with by asking Garrett, now that you've heard people's contributions, does it stimulate you or provoke further thoughts about what you explored in the books and any themes that you didn't get a chance to draw out that are provoked by what the other panelists had to say? 
Uh, yeah, one thing um, comes to mind um, in response to the con contributions, which is that um, uh, part one of the goals of the book was to, um, you know, highlight some of the inspirational qualities, even of those recent revolutions that began as rehearsals but ended as reversals, um, where. Uh, uh, and so we wish to sort of keep the flame of revolution alive. And um, and the book, one of the objectives of the book was to provide sober analysis of the grim, uh, to borrow Francis's word, the grim state that we're, we're in. Um, but another was to find inspiration and to remind readers of this book that um, this is the sort of situation that once... Uh, uprisings of this kind begin to come together within a period uh, of a revolutionary conjuncture, then history becomes suddenly wide open to very radical um, intervention and radical change. Uh, so so the, one of the purposes of the book was to um, find that flame and uh, inspiration. But um, the contributions that we've just heard have all tended to focus on the grim reality that we live in. You know, Francis' um, comment about the, re the revolutions of the past ending in failure or um, being giving way to counter-revolution in the case of the Soviet Union under Stalin. Um, the working class, she argues, is the basis of support in America for Trump and fascism. I would uh, hesitate on that. I, I in the demographic analyses that I've seen of America. I mean, I'm living. I live across the pond, so I'm not as close to it as you are. But the big, concentrated areas of working class life in America are the big cities, which were relatively immune to Trumpism. It was Trump was strong amongst the rich and amongst the villages and rural areas, but. Um, be that as it may, uh, certainly I'd agree with Francis that the working class in, as a whole in America is not in a revolutionary condition, even even though we see glimpses of that in the George Floyd rebellion that Chinsia referred to. Um, Chinsia um, focused on one of the major um, problems that we have to confront as revolutionaries, which is the ability of parliamentary democracy to absorb um, protest, absorb uh, radical traditions. And um, Same, he mentioned the structural shift of workers from large workplaces like Mahala textile factory that had been centers of resistance to, he gave the example of delivery workers and construction workers. I mean, I, I, I think too, that, that that's a very significant point, although I would, it does remind me that one of my um, one of the revolutionary uprisings that I find most inspiring was the East German uprising of 1953. Um, and I find it particularly inspiring because we saw there an the ex astonishing acceleration from no normal conditions of subaltern existence among the, the East German working class to the formation of embryonic Soviets in several towns in, in Görlitz, in in um, the Bitterfeld-Wolfen area, uh, and so on. And this 
acceleration occurred within about 24 hours. I mean, something absolutely extraordinary. And you have to ask why. And it wasn't because, I mean, it's partly because some of these towns uh, had very large workplaces, big factories. But these events actually started with a group that Simon mentioned, construction workers. Uh, so relatively dispersed, at, atomized, mobile work workforce. But but many of these workers had experience of uh, organization and resistance and learning the arts of rebellion in those previous great revolutionary conjunctures of 1919 to 23 of, uh, or, or 1918 to 23 of, of the mid-1940s um, and, and, and so on. And the, the memories of those um, skills and desires and capacities that people acquire in these in, in extraordinary upheavals um, were retained and helped helped lead to this uh, this phenomenal radicalism of 1953. I would just finally um, say that um, I, I agree with Francis that um, you know the record is pretty grim, but the revolutionary moments themselves are moments of extraordinary uplift and festivity and rapid education. I mean, the only one I was, I've been involved with um, as a participant was 1989 in East Germany, and it gave rise to a very mixed outcome. You know, mass unemployment, democracy and independent free unions were one, but um, mass unemployment arose as well, and all sorts of social fractures that are incredibly regrettable. And um, and so it was a mixed outcome, but the moment of revolution itself saw extraordinary, um, uh, rapid collective learning, uh, identity, new identities were formed, houses were squatted, and people extraordinary upsurge of spontaneity. And um, this is something that we really should be treasuring, even from these relatively. Um, minor, if you like, revolutions that are discussed in, in this volume. Thanks so much, Gareth. If there were other people that wanted to respond, I see you. Go ahead, Francis. Well, I certainly agree that the moment of the uprising is a thrilling moment. Where It's a moment when you get a glimpse of the hope and joy that can inspire ordinary people. Uh, to become engaged in politics. Uh, so I agree with that. That is certainly true. I want to, however, make another point. And that has to do with the use of the term electoralism by Gareth and others. Uh, that seems to me to harken back to a time not so long ago when people on the left drew a sharp distinction between movement politics and electoral politics. That if you took the path of movement politics, then you could not, would not take the path of electoral politics because electoral politics would mean the suffocation, the co-optation of the energies and of the joy of the movement. And it would forfeit the transformational possibilities of the uprising. You know, I think that that is wrong. That is a distinction that has been so overdrawn 
by the left, not right now perhaps, but by the left in the past, that it has misled us. Because I think the moment of actual social transformation, not the transformations we desire, but steps toward social transformation have, have been informed by, propelled by the interaction between movements and electoral politics. We have to pay much more attention, I think, to the way in which movements actually energize and inform and transform electoral politics. In the United States today, there are a lot of things happening that are worrisome. But it is also true that the definitely electoral Biden administration has proposed and in some cases enacted larger changes in social policy, good changes in social policy, egalitarian changes in social policy that have been earned won by decades of struggle. Thanks, Francis. I'm sure other people want to respond. Now, there's some big debates on the floor. Chinsia, I saw that you wanted to jump in. Go ahead. I think you're muted right now. Go ahead, Chinsia. Yeah, I mean, I want to, um, yeah, I want to respond to this in uh, in this sense that I, I do agree that I don't think that the issue of uh, participation in the elections can be uh, approached from, a, you know, ideological uh, dogmatic, let's say, viewpoint in which, you know, one says never <laughs> or uh, um, or not at all or they're, you know, essentially incompatible and so on. Uh, for me, um, it is more of a, um, you know, the, the question of participating in electoral processes should be more a question of tactics, which organizations decide, you know, based on the conjuncture, on the situation, and so on. Uh, the problem I wanted, uh, I was trying to emphasize is a different one, which is that um, is the illusion that somehow uh, the, the mechanisms of, uh, um, of uh, uh, parliamentary democracy uh, may enable us shortcuts uh, with regard to the necessity of uh, really rebuilding, <laughs> uh, let's say, class self-organization, its, its own uh, autonomous institutions, and so on and so on. So what I'm, uh, what I'm uh, trying to emphasize is really the, um, the, the, the frequent illusion that I've seen uh, in uh, a number of experiences of the left in participating uh, uh, in uh, electoral processes, for example, in, uh, in Europe, uh, the illusion that somehow uh, the elections or uh, you know electoral visibility is going to replay is going to basically give us the magic solution to uh, the problem of uh, the class self-organization uh, and especially on the basis of what uh, Same was mentioning uh, earlier in uh, in his intervention that uh, there are significant transformations in the in the working class the way in which labor is organized, uh, but also the, the forms in which the working class, uh, you know, um, uh, basically forms itself into a class. So in other words, in, in uh, the, the ways in which it gets activated, in, you know, it's uh, the way it, it resists 
on a daily uh, basis and so on. And, uh, and the problem is that is, you know, um, is to have political strategies that somehow speak to the what we may call uh, the, you know, the new class composition that should be analyzed, addressed and so on. What are the difficulties and the challenges that this new class composition can raise and so on? This should be, I think, a central debate for us. So what class means, what class struggle uh, uh, should mean, uh, what, what is the new class composition, what are the forms uh, through which uh, the class spontaneously is starting fighting back, resisting, and so on and so on. But what I've seen over and over again, and this is the problem I wanted to flag, was somehow the tendency to cultivate the illusion that all of this extremely complicated discussion and, and work that needs to be done can be somehow be replaced through you know, this magic wand of uh, um, electoral participation, electoral success, and so on. And my warning is it doesn't work this way because we have seen it, we have experienced this over and over again. Um, it doesn't work this way uh, if, uh, if, if, in fact, the, the, the all weight, uh, the all attention, the all focus is displaced on that, uh, on that level. Of course, we can gain something. We can win some, you know, small victories, some redistribution, and so on. But the process of reabsorption of uh, uh, potentially revolutionary energies within the mechanisms of the state is going to be unavoidable. And this is, I think, is what we are actually seeing uh, in all of this, all, all of the instances we can uh, think about. So I wanted to clarify that uh, I'm not, you know, my position is not never again. Uh, you know, never participating in uh, bourgeois institutions. That's not my point. My point is, you know, how we uh, rebuild the capacity of strategic collective discussion that really faces the real problems <laughs> or, you know, like the, the really untractable problems that we are trying to somehow avoid by cultivating, in, uh, you know, illusions. Thanks, Chinsia. I, uh, Same, and then I had a couple more questions. And I just, before calling on Same, I wanted to encourage people to put their um, questions in the chat, and we'll try and get to as many of them from the audience as possible before we conclude. But I wanted to pass it over to Same, and then I have a couple of other questions I wanted to pose to the panel. You're muted, Same. We don't really have uh, uh, elections to kind of talk about electoral politics here. Uh, uh, it's a different kind of setting. But uh, to, to go back to the point that Gareth was making, I, I did not mean that, you know, the, the dismantling of the old working class uh, means that the new working class uh, will not play a, a role or is less likely to play a role. It, it was this new working class, by the way, uh, that that made up the, the main bulk of youth that were on the squares uh, in Tahrir and other in, in Tahrir and other places and in the barricades all, all over the country uh, during 2011. Uh, it, the, the, the working class is restructured in capitalism all the time. So it's, it, it keeps changing from sectors to sectors, from industries to, to industries and, and, and so on. Uh, and I, I don't mean that uh, uh, um, construction workers uh, can't be you know, organized and can't, won't be, won't have, won't have strikes and movements and so on. They have, and in Egypt, they do have a history of that. But the left has to realize and understand the changes that are taking place, not stick to old uh, formulas about this is the working class that we have to stay here when it's, when it's, it's changing and we have to change our tactics uh, accordingly. We can't get stuck in, in, in those uh, points. 
The working class in Egypt is far bigger than it was 50 years ago. Okay? Uh, uh, Egypt, in the last 20 years, the majority of people live in cities. Uh, now, the revolution that took place in 2011 was completely an urban uh, uh, revolution uh, uh, because people live uh, in, 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 in the cities. And what are they in the cities? They're workers. They're, they're, they're wage, wage laborers working in one way or, or, or another. And so two, two things I think are important. One, we have to really understand how the right, how the counter-revolution organizes and take that very, very seriously and, and think how this can be fought because uh, they, they keep surprising us, and we shouldn't be surprised. So they keep surprising this ability to take, in, in the case of Egypt, uh, take all the slogans of the revolution and just turn them around and, and create a sense of uh, mobilization amongst middle, particularly middle class, but sections even of the working class uh, in the opposite direction. Okay. So I, I'll give you just one contradictory example, the role of women uh, in, in the revolution. In the 2011 revolution, women played a central role on all the squares and all the movements and all the strikes, uh, 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 central and, and leading role in many in many cases. We had during 2011 the biggest women demonstrations ever in Egyptian uh, in Egyptian history. Okay? So there was that was that was an element. The counter revolution used the women's question in the opposite direction. They, first of all, they, they, they created a sense of fear because they removed the police completely. And so people were scared to move, to open the, on the streets. Uh, there were lots of rapes and harassment and so on of, of women. And they, the counter revolution started talking about the family, how uh, we need to protect our, our daughters. We need to protect our families. This is going to be chaos. They're going to kill us all. It's, it's, uh, so, so even the woman's question was used uh, in the opposite direction. Another example, Christians in Egypt. In Egypt, there's 10% of the population are Christians, uh, the Christian minority. They played a central role in uh, the days of the, the, the 2011 uh, uprising in the revolutionary uh, situation. Central, well, that, the, their participation uh, uh, was what made this revolution at the beginning, at least, a, a secular revolution. It was not did not have a religious uh, 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 shape because there were so many Christians uh, involved. But by by uh, uh, of course the mistakes of the Islamists on the one hand and the demonization of uh, the Islamists by by the by the counter uh, revolution and the creation of a sense of fear. They're going to burn your churches. They are going to kill every, every single one of you. They're going to push you out of the country. This, so the big uh, chunks of the Christian minority went over the, to the counter revolution. Uh, and this is something I think that we have to really study and understand uh, to prepare for the next wave of, of revolutions. Thank you so much, Sameh. I just wanted to underscore that people should buy and read this book. Go to Haymarket Books, get your copy of Revolutionary Rehearsals for the Neoliberal Age. And I also encourage people to go to Spectre Journal and read the discussion that we had um, about what is the meaning of revolution today that Gareth also, also participated in, along with several other um, people, um, that I think is a wide-ranging reflection on a lot of the themes that we're um, developing today. One, one question I wanted to pose to the, to all the panelists is the contrast between the initial version of this book. And I know they're not paired together, but it's striking in the title. The initial version of the book had as a conclusion by Colin Barker how he called attention to 
the 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 key thing was the question of the missing party. That is, that there were workers' councils that were thrown up by revolutionary risings, and there were debates within those workers' councils that were created by the risings in which there wasn't a strong enough organization of the revolutionary left that could provide an answer to the strategic question, and that was instead filled by either right-wing forces or by reformist forces, and opportunities were lost. What, in thinking about the new circumstance, and I know you address this in the book, Garrett, but what, what, how does that question get reformulated? How should we rethink that question um, today of self-organization of the class and oppressed groups and the question of the revolutionary left and its relationship to reformists and to the, the right, some of what Same was just uh, touching on? So, Gareth, let's start with you. Oh, all right. Well, thanks for all those uh, interventions. Um, uh, to Sam, I, I should say, um, yes, I, I, apologies if I misrepresented you at all. I wasn't disagreeing with you. Um, I was just bouncing off the issue that you had raised. I didn't uh, intend to misrepresent. Um, I, I, I'm very interested in um, something as well that uh, Francis was discussing, which is um, where she says that the Biden administration has proposed um, larger egalitarian changes than have been won through decades uh, of struggles. Um, so, I mean, to that, I, I would I would recommend that everyone read this um, wonderful book that discusses um, so not the one we're discussing today. Um, on the back cover, I'm just reading the back cover here. Um, it asks this, have the poor fared best by participating in conventional electoral politics or by engaging in mass defiance and disruption? And this book uh, is uh, Poor People's Movements by Francis Piven and, and Richard Richard Cloward. It's an absolutely phenomenally interesting book, I think, um, which I'd encourage everyone to read. Um, and what's particularly interesting and germane in respect to the discussion we've been having is where one section, in one section of the book, Francis and, and Richard Cloward discussed the electoral system as a structuring institution, the way the electoral system itself structures um, the field of terrain on which um, politi politics is brought out, and how the and and from my perspective, back in the 1970s, Francis was rather too Michelsian in a sense. I mean, she draws on Robert Michels, the Italian German um, elite theorist, who argued that organization leads to naturally leads to bureaucracy and. Colin Barker, um, was quite, was, uh, who was a huge admirer of Francis's work. Um, but on this point of, Mich of the Michelsian tendency in her book, he was quite critical, arguing that, you know, we, we need to find ways of, um, creating, uh, consistent forms of organization that can intervene across the political and industrial field, um, without, um, uh, yielding to those tendencies of bureaucratization, Colin is more optimistic that that's possible. That's that's possible. Francis seems to have shifted from that the 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 defense of 
that that either or formulation that 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 we have to have that we have to always foreground um, revolt from below, violent, dis- disruptive above all, disruptive mass revolt on the streets, rioting, um, strike action in the workplaces, and so on. Um, and she was very dis- dismissive of electoralism. You seem to have um, come across the other side. Now, I'd be interested to hear your comments on that journey that you've made. Um, but just let me finish on one point, which I think partially addresses Ashley's question. Here in Britain, we we had a moment of the up, upsurge of the political left around Jeremy Corbyn, uh, a left social democratic project around an extraordinary left figure, Corbyn, you know, not to the left substantially um, compared to um, Bernie, for example, because Corbyn is an anti-imperialist through and through, whereas Bernie is an imperialist. Um, and uh, if I perhaps I put that a little too sharply, but certainly there's, there's the difference between these two figures. And a, a support group around Corbyn was set up called Momentum, which had mass, massive uh, support from um, young people and, um, you know, working, working people. And, and it was a very substantial movement. The potential was extraordinary to um, build politicized uh, left labor uh, movements that could unite extra parliamentary struggle and feed it into the parliamentary uh, labor party at the same time. But right from the beginning, the tendency of electoralism to structure the political terrain to impose itself, um, uh, that gravity was too great and momentum very rapidly became just a, uh, an electoralist machine for supporting Corbyn's projects within the Labour Party organization. And all and, and that inspirational quality of leading movements in the communities, in the workplaces, on the streets, that quickly subsided and left behind just a grey residue of bureaucratic um, operation of bureaucratic machine politics. And so there's a there's a warning lesson there, I think, for uh, I'm not dismissing at all electoralist engagements on the left, we have to um, get involved at all levels. But um, that um, that pull is very is something we need to be very wary of. But, Francis, you know, go ahead. You can respond. To, to say that uh, the important contr- contributors to social transformation have combined the impact of movements, the disruptive impact of movements, and electoral responses to that disruption is not to say that people make large gains simply by participating in electoral politics. Rather, the emphasis I would uh, insist on is the impact of disruption on electoral arrangements. People affect electoral politics in, when they're in the street, when they're shutting down the factories, when they're interrupting the supply chains, much more than they do when they form a little club to participate in the local po- political party. So this is something that I think frequently gets confused. The A mass strike has a big electoral impact, 
It's not just a strike against the employers. It's not just what it does to the factory, but it also has a big impact on the mass publics who observe the strike and on the political leaders that are trying to rein in and control those mass publics. Thanks, Francis. Other people I'm sure want to chime in on this question. So Same or Chinsia. I just ahead, want, yeah, okay. I just wanted to say something about your question, Ashley, uh, the, the idea of, of what needs to, to change. I think one of the things that need to change after the experience of neoliberalism, after what neoliberalism has done to the to working classes, is that the balance between, um, uh, you know, taking for granted that the workers uh, will, will, will act in a particular way that sh should not. So I don't want to sound volunteers, but I think there, there must be a much more interventionist uh, um, uh, tactics, interventionist strategy. Uh, if uh, so, so the, for two reasons. One is that the experience of workers' revolutions is, is going so much back in history that it's not really part of the memory of the new generations of, of workers. They don't go back to it. They don't, they don't, they, it doesn't come uh, naturally. It, it has to be, uh, uh, the link has to be made by the left. And I think this is one of the things that leftist, radical leftist organizations have to emphasize more than, more than before. Uh, so, uh, for example, in the 20, the 1926, 25-26 revolution in China, the workers, without even in, in places where the Communist Party was not that uh, powerful, they took over the police stations, they, uh, they took over the arms, they, you know, started running things uh, uh, direct. Why? Because they had the experience of the Russian Revolution in their mind. They knew this happened. They knew as person this happened. Now, now we, we're so. Um, removed from that. Uh, and I think that is one of the other things that we need to kind of emphasize in, in building uh, organizations in, in the future. Chinzia, go ahead. I think that... Oh, I meant Chinzia. Let's let Chinzia oh, go. No, no, but uh, Francis, go ahead. Go ahead, Francis. Oh, we're arguing about who should speak. Chinsia, why don't you go ahead? And Francis, if you want to come in, that's fine. Okay, fine. Um, I mean, I, no, I I agree with the, with the, what has been said in the last uh, interventions, and I I, um, I completely also agree with the idea that you know, like we should be careful not to consider negatively uh, the impact on uh, the electoral arena of our struggle. So when we win something, we should actually <laughs> say that we have won. Uh, that's something that, that, you know, that we wouldn't have, you know, this amount of redistribution without uh, the powerful struggles of the past years and so on. So I, I completely agree about uh, with this. Um, I wanted to say uh, another thing that I didn't uh, have the time to say earlier, um, which is about the book, uh, which is the fact that um, one of the reasons I consider this book really useful, and I think people should read it, is that precisely it has, um, you know, besides the theoretical essays, it has a number of, uh, of chapters uh, going really into the details of uh, um, 
potentially revolutionary processes in different uh, revolutionary situations or uprisings and so on. And I think this is uh, extremely important because uh, um, precisely what the... Um, what I was trying to say earlier in terms of, you know, like, you know, recovering the, the ability of discussing uh, in strategic terms means really, you know, having to deal with the details, with the, with the concrete working of political uh, and social processes. Um, and uh, something that uh, uh, I think is, um, is a bit of a problem uh, uh, of, uh, you know, recent years, at least in, you know, in the kind of left I'm familiar with in the United States, Western Europe, and so on, is uh, um, an increasing tendency. In the United States, this is particularly um, uh, particularly um, present as a problem, an increasing tendency to conflate, uh, let's say, morality with strategy, <laughs> or let's say, or, you know, like um, a discussion about principles and, uh, you know, and uh, what are the values we abide by with a discussion about effectiveness and uh, strategy, so and power, and of course the two need to have some relations because otherwise we, you know, uh, we end up reproducing absolutely atrocious uh, uh, mechanisms of uh, oppression and so on. But the two uh, discussions cannot be conflated. Uh, we need to be able, <laughs> or we need to be back to be able to uh, to discuss in, uh, about our political strategies in terms of uh, what can work, uh, you know, what can be effective in these present uh, circumstances, uh, in this uh, um, change context, uh, uh, without you know either repeating simply ideological slogans or, uh, or recipes that do not work. Or basically moving the discussion away from the political terrain to the a more moral terrain. I think uh, again, this is not a general problem. It is a problem of some in some specific situations. I, I would say in, for the U.S. left, this is an enormous problem. Um, uh, and uh, uh, and and so I think there is a, a fair amount of work to be done uh, on this terrain and uh, studying. You know, like having accessible writings about various, uh, you know, moments of struggle, uh, movements, uh, uprising that really analyze uh, this process in, the, in detail uh, from the viewpoint of the question of precisely power. <laughs> uh, I think it is essential as a form of, uh, let's say, political education. So um, for this reason, I think this should be uh, really a reading that militants should, uh, should do in, in collective form and so on and so on, this book. <laughs> Thanks, Chinsia. Francis, do you want to chime in? And then I have a couple of questions from the audience. Yeah, I do want to chime in because I, I think that the, the great problem of the contemporary left is that it no longer has the kind of constituency that it at least imagined at the beginning of the 20th century. This is our problem. Where is our great class warrior, the working class? Marx and Engels told us that that class warrior would be given birth and shaped and nourished by capitalism itself. And there was truth in that, some truth in that, but not enough truth in that. But while that idea seem to be confirmed by experience. 
It was enormously empowering because we thought that history itself would give us victory, would give us the class army that would bring victory. We don't have that anymore. And we have to figure out who our constituency is and how to nourish it. The key question, Francis, that's, um, and it sort of anticipates one of the questions that came from the audience. Um, uh, a person writes, how do socialists prepare right now to win revolutionary opportunities in the coming 20 years? So, um, what should be, what, what is to be done, Gareth? <laughs> God, you're answering, Gareth. <laughs> 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 um yeah that's a big one um i on this i i i think um one of my favorite chapters in this volume uh is neil davidson's perhaps perhaps my perhaps the richest of the chapters where he discusses the actuality of revolution and he divides it into different registers um and so it raises the problematic question which we're discussing you know how to be a revolutionary in non-revolutionary times if there isn't a revolutionary conjuncture no matter how how committed one is no matter how even if one can create bands of revolutionaries to unite with and fight alongside uh one is not going to be ultimately very successful if the if there is not are not mass anti-systemic disruptive movements to, that can really combine to create those opportunities. I mean, Neil makes a case for, you know, part of the actuality of revolution is one's in one's subjective um, attitude, bringing revolutionary politics and strategic thinking into all the struggles for reforms, which were continually involved with and um as revolutionaries that's one's first um commitment to involve oneself in those fights for immediate reforms and to try to bring strategic revolutionary thinking and uh alongside propaganda etc to bear upon them i would say as well on that question that um you know i think we're heading towards very turbulent times and that doesn't fill me with optimism but um, it does uh, remind us that history can shift very um, rapidly. I mean, we're li- moving towards turbulent times because uh, America has been the world's hegemon for uh, a very long time. And in 10, 20, in 10 years, China will be the world's biggest economy. And in who knows, 30, 40 years, maybe we'll, we'll be in a much more multipolar situation, which could be a, a, ver- a, a very conflictual one. Um, climate change is, is rapidly, um, uh, hastening the, well, climate change is, is becoming more and more of a, a critical issue that, um, is going to lead to enormous suffering and to all kinds of forms of political polarization as well. Um, and so, yeah. And, and even even just in the short term, um, by the end of this year in Britain, we could be seeing a period of stagflation. Inflation is rising. There's, there's, we're heading towards a very rapid slashing of 
per people's living standards in this country from which I'm speaking now. Um, and, uh, and labor shortages. Uh, you, you have some in America, I believe, at the moment. Um, over here, we've got some pretty dire ones. Um, I'm reminded in terms of shortages of, of East Germany in the 1980s, where I, I lived, and shortages were, were a major form, major source of grievance that um, helped keep popular anger simmering away and, um, to some extent, fed into the revolutionary events of 1989. Um, so I've just thrown, a, uh, I, I suppose, some ideas up in the air without answering that, fully answering that very, very grand and difficult question. Same, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to say something about this idea of the working class uh, uh, disappearing. It hasn't disappeared, it just moved. It's it's not in the United States yet, but it, it is in China, it is in Brazil, it is in these countries. It's There still is a huge working class and it's growing, uh, uh, but it's in different places, in different areas of the world. Uh, uh, and, 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 and it's not only as it moved, it's changed. The kind of jobs they do and so on have, have changed, but this is still uh, central. And I, I can't see any kind of revolutionary uh, uh, hope uh, without that constituency in particular. I mean, it's, it's not as if we can just choose another class to, 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 because it's, 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 it's central to the whole idea of the kind of uh, uh, revolutionary democracy that, that on, on the left we should be thinking about. So that, that's uh, unimaginable uh, without the working class. Uh, so, so that that is uh, one point. But to understand that it is changing, it is shifting, and it's not as easy as some people imagine that we would, as you were saying in the early 20th century, that the world will progress in that way because the working class will come and automatically it will do this and that. Automatically, nothing happened automatically, uh, uh, and and obviously it required much more than much more than that. But to come back to this idea of, of I think the, the idea of progress that history would take us somewhere was one of the most dangerous ideas uh, on the left. And I think that uh, Neil, Neil Davidson mentions uh, Walter Benjamin uh, uh, talking about the idea that we don't want progress, we want an end to progress. Progress, the capitalist progress will destroy us all. They were, uh, Gareth was talking about climate change. If they, if capitalist growth continues as it is going now, we will all there will there won't be a planet to to, to live to live on. Okay, cities like Alexandria over here will, will drown. The Delta and Egypt will will, will drown. Millions of migrants will be on boats going to Europe, and the Europeans will probably shoot them in in the, in the sea. Uh, and this is the kind of if we don't really intervene now to stop this, this is going to this is what we're 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 we're, we're awaiting. Uh, but that's, that is to, to, to the idea that history will kind of, you know, uh, people, even with this climate change, people will understand it as very dangerous and they will come to the conclusion that, you know, we have to fight this. No, they won't. Not at all. It's not, uh, it's not obvious. The idea that Garrett was saying that we have to take our revolutionary politics to the different struggles uh, that are taking place all the time, uh, continues to be central. Uh -huh. Thanks, Same. Chinsia or Francis, do you want to come in on this? Go ahead, Chinsia. No, I just want to say I don't. I think um, I don't think the problem is that the United States that the working class has disappeared. I don't think this is what Francis was saying. It's uh, rather that the left organizations 
are not made up mostly of working class people, but rather of middle class people, you know, like, uh, um, and I would say there is, um, in, you know, if we think about political organizations in the United States, I think this is true. Uh, and, and I think this is a major, uh, a major problem. Um, other than that, I, I completely agree with what Sam said. And I mean, the issue of, uh, um, I mean, to go back to what uh, Gareth was saying, I mean, about the actuality of the revolution and so on. I mean, I don't want to conclude this panel on a very negative note, but I'm in a negative phase myself. <laughs> I do think, I'm, I don't think we are in a revolutionary conjuncture, but I do think we are in a very big mess uh, in which a number of, uh, uh, contradictions will uh, explode, and you know what Sami was saying, for example, about you know the the the, the climate refugee uh, crisis that will basically you know um, create an enormous amount of tension within, within the in uh, the Mediterranean area is absolutely you know we could, and then we can say the same for uh, uh, Central America and the United States, uh, and you know various process of migrations uh, um, around the world. So I completely, I, I do think that uh, there, there will be explosive contradictions, let's say, uh, and climate change is going to be really, uh, uh, but in a sense, like uh, one, uh, maybe the key factor in the, in the, in the next future in terms, in political terms, but I don't see any automatic Response. So, in other words, and we have seen this also with the pandemic. Uh, unfortunately, in most countries, uh, uh, the the response to the pandemic, in terms of you know the way the pandemic has been managed, in terms of mobilizations, has been right wing, uh, from the Novax uh, to the anti lockdown and so on. It is really disg disgraceful, and uh, there are only a few instances, like for example, Chile, where in fact. A very strong left managed to actually um, organize around the pandemic on uh, a socialist, pro you know, re or revolutionary program rather than uh, on right wing. Uh, and so the the the, the danger uh, also to go, you know, because Neil Davidson insists on this uh, on the centrality of climate change and how this, uh, you know, create the urgency of uh, of the uh, of a revolution and so on. The danger is that in fact even the response to climate change is going to be a right-wing response in the same way in which we have seen with the pandemic. And so um, I don't have uh, any uh, answer to this, uh, to this problem, any solution, unfortunately, but I do think that um, I completely agree with what Neil Davidson writes, that uh, the question of being prepared, being ready <laughs> is crucial. And so um, for this reason, these kind of discussions are absolutely central, especially if they become, you know, militant discussions among uh, organized collectives. Thanks, Chinsia. Francis, do you want to yeah, in on this? I want to warn against a certain tendency to take for granted on the left, in DSA, for example, in the United States, to take for granted that the working class is our natural and deserved constituency. Because, and, and to take it for granted, and yet at the same time, to place a lot of emphasis on the ignorance displayed 
by the Trump uh, squadron. And they are ignorant. And they are vigorously, militantly ignorant, insisting on the danger of the vaccine, for example, insisting uh, that they are ripping off their masks and stuff like that. There is a lot about the right wing in the United States today that displays the influence of working class culture. And we can't ignore that. We shouldn't ignore that. We have to build up a constituency in the working class for the left and not take it for granted at all because it's, I think recent events should warn us that we face a conjuncture which could be disastrous in which the working class moves even further to the right. Thanks, Francis. I'll just give it to Gareth to wrap up with any final comments about the book and the discussion. And then I'll just say a few words at the very end about Spectre and Haymarket, and we'll conclude. So, Gareth? Okay, thanks. for the, this wonderful discussion, really, really um, insightful and invigorating. And um, I, I don't have any um, thoughts prepared to conclude with general points about the book, but um, the, the discussion has led us on to the question of climate change. So I, I'd like to just say one thing, one make one point on that, which is that um, I, I sometimes come across these days um, the argument that the urgency of climate change makes a, makes it imperative that the left is not revolutionary, but looks to social de- democratic strategies instead. And the, it takes this form. It takes a sort of syllogism in its form. There's a first premise, which is the world economy has to be dark, decarbonized very rapidly in the next 10 years, 20 years. That this window is very brief. And the second premise, uh, there's no way we're going to see a worldwide transition to socialism in those 10, 20 years. But social democratic parties can be elected to power in that time period, no doubt. And the third premise, therefore, is a social democratic strategy is therefore essential. And that sounds like a very powerful argument because the first two premises are absolutely indisputable. But the leap to advo- advocate a social democratic kind of interregnum is just a, it just doesn't work. It's a non secretary. Because you could say the same, you could have said the same about any struggle at any scale in any period of modern history. There's always, you know, there's never going to be global socialism within 10, 20 years. And yet struggles that matter to ordinary people, working people, people in oppressed groups have to be won and have to be fought and won as rapidly as possible. But, you know, as revolutionaries, we, we fight within, um, movements for reforms, but we have our eye on the fact that capitalism must be brought to an end, or as Samet says, it will destroy the planet. And um, so I think Cynthia mentioned that, that that we're seeing that the dominant response to climate change will be right wing. Um, that's for sure. But the, the dominant response, as I see it, is really coheres around a kind of technology fetishism, the belief that technology is the only way forward. Um, what we're seeing is governments um, who are going to be gathering at their representatives gathering at COP here in, in Britain in, in, a, in a month's time. They are doing absolutely nothing, but they talk a lot of rhetoric about technology. And that, that 
kind of hot air as somebody's chaired <laughs> just now. Um, uh, it finds its way into the into the left movements as well in, in one of the dominant takes from Jacobin magazine in, in America, for example, is a technology fetishist one, which, and the, this connection, Samer mentioned Walter Benjamin, he, he was the person who first really put his finger on the connection between technology fetishism and the social democracy that is determined to help the process of co-opting uh, radical workers' movements into the capitalist system. Ben, Benjamin is the thinker who saw that the, the most clearly, and um, I really think um, we should go back to him for to, to to hone our critique on that point. Thanks, Garrett. I just want to conclude by encouraging everybody again to get a copy of Revolutionary Rehearsals in the Neoliberal Age from Haymarket Books. Start a study group and discussion group around it and put some of the ideas that you've heard today from the panelists into action, into action actual collective organizing to build a base for a new socialist movement in the working class, as Francis talked about. The other thing I'd just like to encourage everybody to do is get a subscription to Spectre Journal. We're just putting our fall issue to bed, and it includes a magisterial analysis of the economic conjuncture by Michael Roberts, a brilliant piece by Paula Barella on social reproduction theory and a debate between autonomists and Marxists and an excellent interview with Justin Aker-Chacon about the immigration, quote-unquote, crisis, which we've seen in horrific detail with the treatment of Haitians on the U.S.-Mexico border, as well as pieces by Brian Bean and Shireen Akram-Boshar on the Palestinian liberation struggle, and Ho Fung Hung on the U.S.-China rivalry and the relevance of Lenin's theory of imperialism for international politics today. So get a subscription to, uh, to Spectre Journal and get your copy from Haymarket Books of Revolutionary Rehearsals in the Neoliberal Age. I want to thank all the panelists and especially Gareth um, so much for joining us today. And I hope everybody watches and shares this video and most importantly, gets out there into the streets and workplaces and starts organizing for a genuine new socialist movement rooted in the working class and oppressed peoples of all the countries of the world. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.